theyeshiva.net. Eichel Menachem presents A Tale of Two Souls, an ongoing lecture series on the Tanya by Rabbi Yosef Yitzchak Jacobson. This is the fifth tape in the series entitled The Body and Soul of Torah, recorded live at Eichel Menachem, Brooklyn, New York. Good morning. We are in the middle of uh, the first chapter of the Tanya. That's 5B or page 10 in the printed Tanyas. We are on the fifth line of the top. The line begins with the word That's what we're holding now. In the previous uh, class, the Alter Rebbe, the author of the Tanya Rebbe Zalman, has begun defining the terms in Gemara, Tzadik, Benini, and Russia. The Tzadik, the righteous man, the Benini, the intermediate man, and the Russia, the wicked man. Each one containing an offshoot of another level, the Tzadik, where there's a Tzadik Gomer, a Tzadik She'ene Gomer, the complete Tzadik and the non-complete Tzadik, the Russia, the Russia Gomer, and the Russia She'ene Gomer, the complete Russia, the non-complete Russia, and then the fifth, rank or level of the human experience is the Benini, the intermediate man. At first glance, Dalta Rebbe says, the Benini is the intermediate man where both his mitzvahs and his transgressions, his mitzvahs and his affairs are equally balanced. But this raises several serious questions. Question number one is a statement that Rabbi makes in Masech Tebrachas, if you want to know the definition of a Benini, look at me. I am the prototype who embodies the ideal of the Benini. It seems that a Benini is an ambiguous term after all. Tzaddik and the Rasha are more absolute terms. So Rabbi had to give a living example of it, so he gave himself. So a student, Habayah, says, if you're a Benini, you're not allowing anyone else to live. If you're a Benini, that means there's no Tzaddik on the world. Because Rabbi was from the greatest leaders and scholars and holy men of his time. The time of the Gemara, he was an Amira, he lived in Bavali, he was Rosh Hashiva of Pompadissa. So the question is, if a Benini is actually the person who is equally balanced between his positive deeds and his negative deeds, how can Rabbah err to the extent to define himself as a Benini? Rabbah, who is someone who did not cease learning for a moment, the Talmud, the Gemara says that even the Malach HaMavis, the angel of death, could not make contact with him to remove his soul from his body when his time came because he did not stop learning for a moment. So this very same rabbi says, I am a person who is 50% mitzvahs and 50% full of averis. It seems ridiculous to make such a mistake, a mistake you make in something that's similar. But you don't make a mistake to totally, uh, total uh, extremes. That's one issue. Second issue that Rebbe raised was more a halachic issue, and that is, when we delve in to the sea of the Gemara, it's difficult to understand at what moment exactly can you define a person as the Benini. In Talmudic literature, the moment a person does an Aveira, they transgress the will of Hashem of HaKadosh Baruch Hu, they are deemed a Rasha. The moment they do Tshuva, they are deemed a Tzaddik. This has literally halachic implications. We discussed it at length last week. Regarding Kiddushin, regarding testifying in Beisdin, someone who was even over on one lav, a lav which uh, uh, imposes on him a penalty of Malchus, is possible for aid, this is possible for testimony. That's even one Avera, despite this person can have 99% mitzvahs, as long as they do not do tshuva, they are deemed a rasha. So when exactly is the person called the Benini? 50-50. But when? The moment you do an Avera, you're called a Russia. Because you transgress the divine will. The moment you do Tshuva for that Avera, you're back at Tzaddik. So when can you be a Benini? And he goes on to explain that you cannot say, for example, a Benini is someone who is meticulous in the observance of all the biblical mitzvahs, but not the rabbinic mitzvahs. 
Because we see that even someone who transgresses a mitzvah of the Vesefrim, of the rabbis, is also called a rush. Further, even someone who just has the ability to protest others who are involved in negative transgressions, has the ability to prevent them from engaging in it, and does not, is also deemed a rush. Certainly someone who does not do a positive commandment. All these people are called Rishayim. So when exactly can a person be deemed a Benini? This forces the Al-Tarebbe to redefine the term Meikara. Benini is someone who does not possess even one Avera. Not a biblical Avera, not a mitzvah essay, not a mitzvah leisasa, not a mitzvah from the Rabbanon, not even ever put in a position where he had an ability to prevent others from doing an Avera and did not do so. The Al-Tarebbe goes even further, even the Avera of Bittul Torah, which means... Someone who has the potential to study Torah for a moment and does not, which is very difficult. <laughs> Mitzvah to observe, utilizing every single moment of our day of our life, every free moment to study the Torah. But if a Bainini is not a person who mastered that ability, he's not a Bainini, he's a Rasha. So what's the definition of a Bainini in light of this? Someone who does not have one Avera, not in thought, not in speech, not in deed, not medivritayda, not medivritayda, not even mishiyash b'yadilimchaz v'alei micha. Now we understand how Rabbi could define himself as a Benini. After all, a Benini is not such an uh, evil man. A Benini is gansa fainayit. Rabbi still made a mistake. Abayah still was, mis- uh, was not pleased with the statement. But we understand where the man is coming from. He calls himself a Benini. Not bad. <laughs> they tell the story about... Uh, the Tzamach Tzedek, the grandson of the Balatanya, Reb Nachemendel Schneerson, one of his great students and pupils, his name was Reb Hillel, he was from a city in Russia called Parich. They call him Reb Hillel Paritcher. So he, before he came to the Rebbe of the Tzamach Tzedek, he came already earlier to the Mittler Rebbe, to, uh, to the Alter Rebbe's son. He was a great Talmudic sage and scholar, as well as a Kabbalist. He was very involved in the disciplines of Jewish mysticism and spirituality and consider himself righteously a tzaddik. According to all the definitions that he was aware about a tzaddik, he considered himself a true tzaddik. When he came to Chabad, and he learned Tanya, so he learned the first chapter, he sighed and he said, Halavaya Benini. A tzaddik was, was money, Halavaya Benini. So this is where Al Rebbe stands at, this mo- at the moment. Now we'll continue in sight. As mentioned the previous weeks, if anyone has any questions or misunderstandings, please don't hesitate to voice your uh, thoughts and feelings. Okay, as mentioned, the fifth line from the top of Ahadam Rinan Baalm. This raises, however, a major question. Ahadam Rinan Baalm. This, which is commonly known in Torah literature, the Mechzal Mechzal Mikri Beinen Nivirayv Zachis Mikri Tzadik. There's a well-known saying that who is a Benini, someone who is equally balanced between his mitzvahs and his averis. And Arayv Zachiyas, someone who possesses a majority of Zachiyas, of merits and a minority of sins, that's a tzaddik. Who's the Damrinam Ba'alma? What is commonly being said, he doesn't mean what is said on street corners, that a tzaddik is defined this way. He means in the Torah literature. If anyone opens up on Masikhtar Rosh Hashanah, Daft Zayin, the Gemara describes over there what happens on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, how three books are opened up, Sefer Shulchayim, and Rechaman Lutzan Sefer Shulmisa, and there are three characters that are judged, the Tzaddik, the Benny, and the Rasha, so the Tzaddikim are immediately inscribed and sealed for a year of life, the Rishayim for a year, and opposite, Chas Shalom and the Benini, stands hanging until Yom Kippur, Yom Kippur, his fate for the coming year is established. What is the definition of their tzaddik benini and a rasha? So both Rashi and Tesvis say clearly, a tzaddik is someone with a majority of merits and a minority of sins. Benini is in the middle and a rasha is the other way around. Same is true in Rambam, Hilchus Tshuva, Perigimel. A whole period he devotes to the concept of a tzaddik benini and a rasha and defines it the same way. He even goes further and makes a collective definition. He says a city where the majority of the people of the city have positive traits is called a city of tzaddikim. A city which is equal, ba- equally balanced, is a city irbaninis, and a city which has the majority of sins is a ear of Rishayim. By the way, parenthetically, when we speak about even this definition of a tzaddik abenya in a rasha, does not mean literally 
50% and 50%. For example, I'll call you a Benini because throughout your life you did uh, 300,000 mitzvahs and 300,000 averis. So every day, for example, you do 10 mitzvahs and 10 averis. You do tefillin, you uh, make brachas, you say shema, you put on tzitzis, and then you talk Lashon Hara, you do another five mitzvahs to oppose. That's not a Benini. And therefore, uh, the Rambam explains clearly that's totally not the definition of a Benini and not a tzaddik. There's only one Entity, one being who can judge who's a tzaddik and who's a baini, that's the Rebbeinah Shalom. It does not go in numbers. It does not go in a quantitative measure of one mitzvah versus one avera, two mitzvahs versus two averas. It is very much dependent on quality, on the situation of the human being, on the circumstances which he finds himself, on his affiliation, on his background, on his parents, on his level of education, what type of mitzvah it is, what type of avera it is. Not all averas are sometimes one avera can overwhelm ten mitzvahs. So the only one who can judge who is 50-50, who has a majority of mitzvahs and a minority of averis, is the Rebbeinu Shalaylam, who takes account of every individual's behavior and conduct. That's just parenthetically when we say 50-50, it's not to be understood in numbers, in quantitative numbers, rather in qualitative terms. But the question over here is a very fundamental one. Torah keeps on insisting that this is the term of a tzaddik in Russia. So in the 18th century, Yibshner Zalman of Liadi writes a Tanya, and he redefines the terms of Tzadik Benyei and Russia. That's in clear contradiction, the Alter Rebbe asks on himself, to what is commonly known as the definition of these people. So he answers, no, no contradiction at all. Because who shame hamushal inyan scharva'inish? Those definitions of the Tzadik Benyei and Russia are borrowed names concerning the concept of reward and retribution. A person is judged according to the majority of his deeds. He is termed tzaddik, a righteous, in his verdict. Because he is acquitted in the trial. In Hebrew grammar, there are three terms. Shema etzim, shema tayra, and shema mushal. A shema etzim is a noun. You'll talk about a table, a chair, a shulchan, a kisei, a adam. That's a shema etzim, an essential name. A shema tayir is an adjective. You'll say, the table is large, the table is small. The table is white, the table is black. The term of big and small, uh, short and tall, these are not essential names. These are names that are used to describe a noun, another aspect. Then you'll have, for example, a chacham or a tipesh. Wise or dumb is not a term for itself. You say, this person is wise, this person is not wise. Then you have a Shem HaMushal, a third, which is a borrowed name. You'll talk in Hebrew about the Reish HaShulchan, the head of a table. A table doesn't have a head. A human being, an animal has a head. However, since the head in the human being is the beginning of the structure of his body, we borrow the term head and we apply it to a table. So we'll say the Reish HaShulchan, etc. And many examples with this Hashem HaMushal. So it's just a figurative term because we want to apply a certain message that is applicable in this case as well. The same is true over here. It's a shame HaMushal. is a borrowed term from the true definition of a tzaddik Why would we borrow it? Because in the field of punishment and reward, over there a person is judged according to the minority and the majority of his deeds. That's how the based in Shalmaila, the heavenly courts, judges a human being. Since he is judged, and therefore, if one has a majority of positive traits, they are acquitted in the verdict, in the verdict of Rosh Hashanah in Yom Kippur, or in the general verdict of Hashem throughout their life or after their life. So therefore, this person is termed a tzaddik. He's termed righteous because in this case, he is deemed righteous. He is acquitted in the trial, in the court, and he goes out as zakai. He goes out perfectly fine. So you borrow the term tzaddik to say he's righteous it is not the true definition of a righteous person. Rather, in this case, regarding the trial, regarding how this person will be judged, what will be the fate of this person, he's called a tzaddik. If someone comes to the rabbi, you have a dintaira with your fellow man, and the rabbi says that you win and you lose. He, the one time is about the other guy that he stole from him a thousand dollars, and the rabbi makes a verdict. He says, this person is zaka, he's innocent. So what does the rabbi mean? He's innocent in every single aspect of his life. Regarding this issue, this accusation that he stole a thousand dollars, he's innocent. So the same is true here. 
It's a shame how much it's a borrowed name. Ava le'inyan. Amita shame ha tayerva ha'mayla shalmayla sumadregas chalukhe sadikim ubeninim. But when we are to, con- to consider the true definition and meaning and rank of the different ranks and gradations of a tzaddikim and beninim, Amru Razal on this, Razal say in the Brachas, of Samachalaf Amit Beis mentioned in the beginning of Tanya already, tzaddikim yetzer tayv shayfta. The tzaddikim are judged solely by their yetzer tayv, by their good inclination, meaning judged that the soul, opinion, and role in their life and in their psyche plays, is played by the Yetzir Toiv only. Shenemar, the Gemara brings a Pasuk of Tehillim, David HaMelech says in Tehillim, Kuftes v'libi chalol b'kirbi. My heart is void within me. What does it mean my heart is empty? Chalol means empty within me. She'en le'yetzir hara, he does not have a Yetzir hara. He does not have an evil inclination, so his heart is devoid of a Yetzir hara. Ki hargi b'tainis, it says, that David HaMelech executed, so to speak, his Yetzirah through fasts, through tiniest. The source of this is in Yerushalmi, in Saitan, in Brachas, the Yerushalmi says that David HaMelech did not have a Yetzirah. Carbon 8 in Yerushalmi explains that it was because Hargi B'tainis, he killed him through a tainis. Parenthetically, Chalal, the word Chalal has two interpretations in the commentators on Tehillim Kuftas. Some of Farshim define Chalal as a, uh, a victim, someone who was killed, it's called a chalol by Yaglarufa. We find ki yimotzi chalol ba'achat sharecha. So v'libi chalol b'kibi means my heart has a dead victim within it because he killed his yitzhara. Another interpretation of chalol is it's void. My heart is void. Chalol also means hollow, empty, hollow. So my my heart is hollow within me. And Al Tareb is seemingly of Eric's um, uses that explanation because he defines she'ain le'yitzhara. Why ain't le'yitzhara? So he explains ki harge b'tainis. So that is the true definition of a tzaddik, Yetzir Tev Shaftan, that there's literally no Yetzirah within him. No, but the Gemara says, Tzaddikim Yetzir Tev Shaftan, Shenemar Velibi Chalol Bekirbi. The Gemara brings the Pasuk on David. It's true, David HaMalach was a chassid. But this is also the level of a tzaddik. But someone who did not reach, who did not attain this level, Obey his merits, overwhelm and surpass his sins. He does not enter the realm of the tzaddik. And he emphasizes the word klau. What is the klau? The truth is, he's not even a benini. In light of above, this person is not even a benini. A benini is not someone who possesses a majority of positive traits and minority of sins. A benini is someone who lacks any aver, who has only zachis and no averness, but certainly he's not a tzaddik. Not a tzaddik gomer, not a tzaddik shayin, a gomer, not even a benini. But l'chein amr razal b'medrash. That is the reason why razal saying the medrash, ra'akadosh baruch hu b'tzaddikim shayin muatim. Hashem observed that tzaddikim are very few. Amad v'shaslan b'chol der v'der. So he rose and he planted them in every single generation. V'chulu, etc. The Gemara brings over there a pasik. And then the Gemara continues and says that the world can exist even with the merit of one tzaddik. And the Gemara brings the Pasuk, the tzaddik is the foundation of the earth. At the surface, we seem perplexed when we read this Gemara. Hashem saw the tzaddikim are so few, so he had to rise and plant them in every generation. Even if you walk the streets of Borough Park, I'm sure you could find plenty of Jews who have Rav Zachis and Miyatavainis. It's not so difficult to find a person who the majority of their life is uh, is filled with Zachias and there's a minority of Venus. On the contrary. I don't know, average or not average, but it's totally not uncommon. A Benini, someone who's Mechza Zachis and Mechza Venus, is Lav Dafka, the majority of people. So Hashem saw that Tzadikim are so few, He had to plant them in every generation. If not, there would be generations without Tzadikim. So this forces us to redefine the term of a tzaddik. A tzaddik is not only someone who has the majority of mitzvahs and a minority of averis. A tzaddik is totally of another stature, totally of another level, of another gradation, and therefore Hashem saw there are so few. So we had to plant them in every generation. Um, uh, so over here immediately, we are uh, forced 
to re-examine the definitions of a tzaddik, a benny, and a rasha according to their true shematayr va'amayla. What is the true definition? So a benny, he said in its true definition, is someone who doesn't have no avarice and full with mitzvahs. A tzaddik in its true definition is what? That's already a benny. So a tzaddik, he goes a step further, that Yibichlal doesn't have a yetzer hara. Not only did he never do an avera and has only mitzvahs, but Yibichlal never has a yetzer hara. And a rasha is what? Even if he did one Aveir and he's already deemed a Russia. By the way, someone asked me last week, when we talk about a Bainini not having any Averis, it doesn't mean that someone who ever did an Averi can't be a Bainini. You can do Tshuva and become a Bainini. It just means that after he does Tshuva, so at that moment he doesn't have any Averis, he only has Mitzvah, so he's called a Bainini. Yeah. Very good. This is a good question. Now we come to the next step. You're asking that in the Gemara, which the Alter Rebbe quoted previously, to demonstrate that a Bainini is an individual who doesn't even have one sin, because the moment a Jew does sin, because the moment a Jew sins, he's called a Rasha, the moment he does truth, he's called a Tzaddik. In that Gemara, a Bainini is absolutely not mentioned. The Gemara doesn't mention a Bainini. If he says, you do an Averi, you're a Rasha, you do Tzaddik, you're a Tzaddik. And the, furthermore, what does the Gemara say there? That when you do Tzaddik, you're a Tzaddik, even if you have a Yitzhar. So that Gemara also doesn't suit the definitions that Al-Tarebbe is granting to the term Sadiq and Bainini here in Tanya. According to that Gemara, it would seem, if you do Tshuva, even if you have a Yitzhahara, you're a Tzadik. If you don't do Tshuva, you're Takarash. Where does the Bainini come in? This is a very good question. And we'll soon see how the answer to this question Valtarebbe actually conveys to us through one word, which he uses in this parak, as I shall soon explain. The point being that here we must understand an important difference that characterizes halacha, that distinguishes halacha from agada, halacha, the legal part of Torah, from agada, from the more homiletical spiritual aspect of Torah. Halacha deals primarily with the activities, with the deeds of the human being, with the external dynamics of the Jew's life, with what he says and what he does, what is recognizable to the perceiver's eye. Halacha usually does not deal with the motives with the essential character, with the innate disposition and personality of the human being, Halach is primarily concerned with how man behaves on a functional level. Not with his motives, not with his cravings, lusts, impulses. That is not the element that Allah addresses. Halach addresses man on a behavioral level. There's a very famous Naida Bihuda, I'm sure you're familiar in Shalsa Chuvas Naida Bihuda, Ayrachaim Simvav. When Naida Bihuda says essentially that Bayzdin, the Jewish courts, do not deal with what is going on in the essence of the human condition. Because every single person, every Jew who transgresses or violates the divine will, and then Bayzdin has to give him a penalty, and sometimes the penalty is very severe, a death penalty. For example, for murder or idolatry or adultery, where the penalty is death. Now, if the, Jew, if the Jew does tshuva, if he does tshuva, Hashem forgives him for his sin. If he forgives him for his sin, the penalty is off. Can the Bezdin rely on the Jew coming and saying, I did tshuva? So the Neid Behuda says, no. Bezdin judges the human being according to what he does. They cannot judge what is going on in a person's inner Heart and inner soul. Hashem can judge that. The creator of the universe can judge that. The court cannot judge that. Halacha. What halacha is, what halacha tends to be, what halacha aspires to be, is a system that deals with the behavioral element of the Jew. Of the human being. Therefore, in halacha, there is no such a thing as a benini. In halacha, the true definitions of personalities exclude a profile called a Benini. Either you're a Tzaddik or you're a Rosh. 
If you have not violated the divine will, you're a tzaddik, you're a righteous person. If you have violated the divine will, you rebelled against the creator of the universe, against Hashem, you are a Russia. Halacha defines truth from the external behavior of a human being. The person is defined via what he does, how he behaves. Therefore, if he did an Aveda, he's a Russia. If he did Shuvi, he's a Tzaddik. Ah, you'll say this person has an evil inclination and therefore he should be called a Bainani. In Halacha, we look how he behaves. In his deeds, in his behavior, in his activities, in his words, does he obey the divine will? Is his behavior on a day-to-day basis consistent with the divine blueprint for life? With the guide of Torah and Shulchan Aruch? Absolutely yes. Ah, he has impulses, he has cravings which gravitate towards sin, that does not remove from him the term of a tzaddik in the world of halacha. Halacha is not concerned with that element. Halacha is not concerned with what's going on in your soul. Halacha deals with the body, with the behavior, with the externality of life. And on that level, the person lives a life which is absolutely, unequivocally consistent with Hashem's will. One second, one second. That's the reason why previously the Rebbe on the bottom of Ahmed Aleph, the Rebbe says, "B'shasha isa avaynais nikre rasha gomer v'im achik achasat tshuva nikre tzadik gomer." So you, you asked last week, what's the gomer? Nikre rasha v'im achik achasat tshuva nikre tzadik. Why did the Rebbe use the words gomer? Complete rasha, complete tzadik. Because this is what he's trying to say. In halacha, there's no room for compromise. There's no room for giving a person the term Bainani. He's an intermediate man. Why? One of the two. If he has violated the divine will, so he has rebelled against Melech Malcha Malcha Makadish Baruch. That means this human being lived a life which is antithetical to what Hashem wants from him. He rebelled against the Torah. So even if that rebelliousness expressed itself in one issue, he is defined as a Russia. So that's what Alter Rebbe is saying. In Allah, when a Jew doesn't have any, he's a complete Russia. He's really not a Russia. He's really a Ben. He's a Russia. His life and Hashem's blueprint are in contrast with each other. If he does Truva, he's a Tzadikam. From the halachic world, that's how it is. You rebelled against the Kaddish Baruch Hu, you're a Russia. You have not rebelled against the Kaddish Baruch Hu, you did Shuva. So you're a Tzadik. So where's the gray area? And that's why, in that area of halacha, there's no term Bainani. The Gemara doesn't talk about a someone who's not a Tzadik. He's also not a Russia, he's a Bainani. Regarding Schar where the terms are borrowed, we have a Tzadik, we have a Bainani, we have a Russia. Regarding the halachic definition of what a human being is, not describing his verdict, not describing the reward or punishment that's administered to him, describing who he is, who the human being is, the Shema Tayar. Here we have a Tzadik and we have a Rosh. But then there is another element of Torah, the element of Agada. And Agada, or Pnimis HaTorah, the more deeper, uh, the spiritual, esoteric dimensions of Torah, deal not just with the behavioral element of man's life, with man's conduct. They also deal with man's soul, with man's motives, ambitions, impulses, cravings, desires, lusts, and so on and so forth. In a Pnimi Isatayra, in Agada, a person is not defined solely by what he does. We discuss who he or she is. Not only what this human being does, what their activities are, what their behavior is, we also discuss who they are, what is going on in the essence of their consciousness, what is the core of their personality. We don't only discuss the chitzainius, the external expressions, we also discuss the more deeper dimensions that are concealed from the perceiver's eye. Here, a new Term is used. The term of a bainani. What's the term of a bainani? A person doesn't sin. He does not sin. 
But nevertheless, he's not a tzaddik. Why? Because he has an impulse to sin. He has a yitzhahara. And since he has a yitzhahara, so there is an element in him which is still antithetical to divinity. There is a dimension in his consciousness which is in contrast to godliness, to spirituality, to holiness, because he has a yitzhahara. There is evil within him, although that evil never comes to fruition in his words or in his deeds or in his behavior. So it depends from which perspective you're talking. It depends from which perspective you're addressing the issue. If you're addressing the issue from a halachic perspective, the true, it's not fake, the true definition of a tzaddik and a rasha is someone who sins and someone who does tshuva. And there's no room for a bainani. There's no room. That is the true definition. However, when you're discussing the spiritual internal dimension of Torah, the true definition of a tzaddik is not someone who doesn't sin. It's someone who doesn't want to sin. Someone who abhors sin. Someone who is repulsed by sin. Someone who doesn't even possess an inclination, a desire, doesn't gravitate to sin. That is the definition of a tzaddik. However, someone who does have a Yetzir Hara, although he never sins, so according to Allah, of course he's a tzaddik. His whole life is consistent with Hashem's will. In the deeper elements of Torah, in the spiritual elements, I should say, the soul elements, which analyze and deal with the spiritual and deeper elements in man's personality, here we can discuss a new aspect, a new issue, where the human being in his life does not rebel against the divine will. But on the other hand, we discuss and we say that there is a part in him, which from that dimension, from that perspective, he is rebelling against Hashem. Because he has a Yitzhara. So there is a part in him, which is... In co- which stands in contrast and in opposition to the divine will, and because of that, he's not a tzaddik, and that is what a bainan is. Someone who has yitzhar. In summation, there are three areas, different areas, in which we use these terms: tzaddikim, bainanim, erishayim. We use these terms in three different ways. A, as a shame hamushal, as borrowed terms concerning issues of reward and punishment. In this case, we're not describing the human being. We are not defining who these people are. We are discussing one issue. Namely, what is their fate regarding reward and punishment? Are they acquitted in the trial or are they found guilty? That is what we are discussing. In this case, we call it a shame hamushal. We are not defining the nature of their life, who they really are. We are regarding the verdict. We call this person righteous, wicked, or intermediate. That's one issue. Next, stage two is where we use the terms tzaddik and rasha, not as shame hamushals, as shame atayars. Describing the actual human being from a halachic perspective. From a halachic perspective, a tzaddik is not someone whose majority of positive deeds outweigh his minority of sinful deeds. A tzaddik is someone who has not sinned, who doesn't have even one sin. A rasha is someone who violated the divine will even in one specific issue. And that's what the Rebbe says, even however our mitzvah's essay is mikrodasha. Even if it's a divrei seifim, it's also mikri rasha. From a halachic perspective, these are the accurate, true definitions of a tzaddik and a rasha. Aye, we find in Rosh Hashanah, a tzaddik is reiv zachis, amiyat avainis. So the Alter Rebbe explained, let's not confuse, that's a shame amushal, you're not dealing with a person, you're dealing with reward and punishment, and regarding this issue, he's defined as a tzaddik. But now the question is, what's a bainini according to the true definition? When Rabbi says, kegoyinan a bainini, in the part of Agada of Taira, what is a Bainini? If a Tzaddik doesn't have any Avers, a Russia has even, a Russia, someone who even has one Avers, so where's a Bainini? 
So now there is a third place in which we use these terms, Sadiq, Benini, and Rasha, and that is describing the inner dynamic of man's character, personality, and consciousness. When we are describing and defining what is taking place, not only in man's behavioral life, but also in man's essential life. Tzaddik, in this case, is the Jew who doesn't even have a Yetzir Hara, who the totality of his condition is permeated with the godly perspective. A Benini is someone who, his external life is pervaded with the godly perspective, but nevertheless, his internal life is still dichotomized between a godly inclination and a negative inclination of Yetzir Hara. And the Russia is that Jew who not only has a Yitzhahara, but allows that Yitzhahara to be expressed in his behavioral life. Now, according to this, we will understand a very interesting term that Rebbe uses in this chapter, which apparently seems enigmatic. That Ra Kadesh Baruch Hu B'Tzadikim Sheimuatim Amad V'Shaslam B'Chol Dair V'Dair. This is why our sages have expounded in the Medrash that Hashem saw that the righteous were few, so He arose and planted them in every generation. Because in light of the true definition of a tzaddik, which is someone who doesn't have a yitzhara, we understand why Hashem had to plant them in every generation, as explained above. And the obvious question is, why the term Medrash? This statement of Chazal is in Gemara. Why does the Alter Rebbe use the term Medrash? So, at first glance, we may answer simply that we all know, as mentioned before, in Gemara there are two parts. Gemara there's Halacha, there's Agada. Halacha deals with the legal judiciary system of Torah. Agada deals with the more ethical, spiritual system of Torah. Since this Gemara is in the Chelek HaGada, is in the part of Agada of Gemara, and Agada is also termed Medrash often because that is also what the idea of Medrash is. Medrash expounds on the Psukim of Torah and deals with the spiritual, deeper ethical life of the Jews. So therefore, the Alter Rebbe uses the term Medrash. But that only explains why the Alter Rebbe could use the term Medrash. But why does he use the term Medrash? Why doesn't he say Gemara? Furthermore, just several lines earlier, he quoted a Gemara, also from Agada. And he says, Amru Rabbi Seinuzal, Amru Razal, Tzadikim Yitzhah Tayyip Shaftim, from Brachas Dav Samachalaf Amit Beis. In fact, this whole Perik is fraught with many quotations of Gemara. The Alter Rebbe quotes in this Perik, Mesichta Baba Basra, Mesichta Brachas, Pirke Yavas, Mesichta Nida, Mesichta Yavamas, Mesichta Shvuas. Even if in this case, for whatever reason, he doesn't want to Right, the name of the Masechta, Masechta Yuma, say Isa Gemara, say Chazal, Razal, whatever, but why Medrash? Why the need to use the term Medrash? Now one might think that it's irrelevant which word al Rebbe chose, Medrash, Gemara, Chazal. But this is not the case because, as I mentioned in the first class, the Tanya was written in an extremely meticulous fashion. Dr. Rebbe wrote it and rewrote it and revised it in several editions. The Tanya has actually been written in several editions. He was very meticulous in the phrases, in the choice of words, in the paragraphs, even in the letters. To the extent that Hasidim say that the Tanya is the Torah Shebiksav of Hasidim. It's the Bible of Hasidism. And one of the comparisons between the Tanya and the Torah Shebiksav is in the sense that just as Torah Shebiksav was written in an extremely meticulous fashion where not only the general ideas are meticulous and meduyik but also the choice of words and letters the same is true concerning the fashion in which the Alter Rebbe wrote the Tanya so the fact that he uses the term Medrash demands and requires a serious explanation the Rebbe once explained the usage of this term Medrash through the Alter Rebbe as the method through which the author illuminates the above mentioned idea concerning the various definitions of Tzaddikim, Benanim and Rishayim in different parts of the Torah. Where in one part of the Torah 
The definitions Sadikim Bainanim and Rishayim are one type. And another part of the Torah, these very definitions vary drastically. This distinction and explanation in this distinction, which seems quite enigmatic, the Al-Turebbe explains and crystallizes in a clear fashion by using this term Medrash. And since this is such a fundamental issue, I would like to, dis- to discuss this for several moments. There's a very interesting Gemara in Psachim, Tzadik Dalar Amit Beis, where the Gemara tells about the astronomical debates that existed between Chachme Yisrael and Chachme Yomais, the sages of Israel and the sages of the nations of the world. And one of those disputations concerns the location of the sun at night. Where does the sun disappear after the day culminates? Where is the sun? That by day, the sun travels below the firmament, below the heaven. And by night, where does the sun go to? The sun goes above the rakia, above the firmament. And since by night, the rakia is separating the earth from the sun, so therefore we, the earthly inhabitants cannot perceive or enjoy the sun. By day, on the other hand, the sun travels in below the heaven, on top of the earth without the rakiyah separating, so therefore we see the sun. That's the opinion of Chachmi Yisrael. The wise men of the nation say, by day, the sun travels below the firmament. By night, the sun is to be found below the earth. Their words are seemingly more correct than our words. Because by day, we see that the wells are cold. The springs of water. The well springs are cold. And by night, they're heated. So why are they by night heated? Because since by night the sun finds itself not lamailam in harakia, but lamatam in akarka, so therefore at this time of the 24-hour cycle, the sun warms the springs, the well springs that are to be found in the depth of the karka. This is what the Gemara tells us. Kumts again the shittim akobetzes in ksuvis dafyad gimel amiralev, zag the shittim akobetzes that shamaiti mishmoish rabbeinu tam, I heard in the name of Rabbeinu Tam, that Rabbeinu Tam used to say concerning this Gemara, in which Rabbi says, that the Chachme Yomers were victorious in their debate over Chachme Yisrael. This means just that in the debate they were victorious. In the Tainus, in the proofs that they presented in order to demonstrate the validity of their perspective, in that they were triumphant over the Chachme Yisrael. But the truth, the true facts are certainly as Chachmi Yisrael have defined them. And this is what we say in Davening, everyone knows in Shabbos, in the Tefillah of Shabbos by Shachris, we praise Hashem for the system that He created in our universe. And one of the things we praise him for is that he is that Hashem bursts open. He breaks open the windows of the firmament and he removes the sun from her place. What, is this, what does this mean? What does this tefillah mean? Since by night the sun finds itself on top of the rakia, so we can't enjoy the sun. So what Hashem has to do every morning is he has to create windows in the rakia. He has to create openings, holes in the Rekia, and he has to remove the Chama Mimkaima Lamailam in Arakiya, that the Chama should arrive Lamatam in Arakiya, and then us inhabitants on earth can enjoy the beautiful warmth and light and glow from our sun. This the Shittimakabatis writes in Ksuvas, the Taisvisarash writes it there in Ksuvas. Rabbi Kiva Eger in Gilyan Ashas quotes the Shittimakabatis and the Rabbi Natam here in Psachim Tzadik Dalaram at base. How are we to understand this piece of Gemara? What's going on over there? 
Amar Rabbi Rabbi says that we need in the Vrehen Midvarenu. That the Chachmei Omeris were triumphant over Chachmei Yisrael. That what they said is apparently more correct than what we have said. What Chachmei Yisrael have said. Comes again the Shittim Mekubetus and says, Avol That Rabbi is referring only to the debating ability that the Chachmei had in this issue. That in that they surpassed Chachmei Yisrael. But regarding the real thing, and what is Pshat? The Chama by night is Lamaidum and Arakiya. How are we to understand this? And the Rabbeinu Tam says that this is God the Emes. That the Emes is that where is the Chama by night? Where is the sun after the conclusion of the day? Not on the other side of the earth. Rather it's Lamaidum and Arakiya. It goes beyond the heaven. And it became part of our davening. Every single Shabbos morning. We daven. And what do we say in davening? Mature. Intelligent people. How are we to understand this whole thing? So there's an interesting Radal, a fascinating Radal actually. Radal is the acronym of Reb David Luria, Rabbeinu David Luria, who was a great sage, Kabbalist, commentator, lived in the early 19th century in the capital of Lithuania, Vilna. And he wrote a magnificent, elaborate commentary on Pirkei de Rebelezer. And on the, in the opening pages of his commentary on Pirkei de Rebelezer, actually the page before the actual Pirkei de Rebelezer begins with the Bira Radal, there was a half a page, a piece written by the Radal concerning different issues in astronomy as they are discussed in Chazal, in Gemara and in, in, in such, in Gemara and in other Midrashim. And the Radal in this little piece brings up this issue. And he asks the above-mentioned questions. And he gives a very interesting explanation, which he bases on ideas written by the Ramchal, Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzatu, and the Vilnagon. Albeit that it's brief and concise, let me attempt to explain it for several moments. What the Radal is saying. One of the basic doctrines of Jewish mysticism, of Kabbalistic teachings, is... That every single physical entity has a spiritual counterpart. Hashem didn't just create the physical world per se. But rather creation came about as a result of a complex, long evolutionary process. Evolution from the spiritual to the physical. Defined in Kabbalah as Seder Hishtalshalus. Every single physical entity begins existing on a spiritual plane, in spiritual realms. On that realm, of course, it doesn't have any physical veneer. It doesn't have any physical dimension. And then it begins evolving. And as it evolves along the various gradations, ranks and levels, it becomes that much more materialistic, that much more coarse, until it reaches the final stage of evolution when it assumes a very concrete, physical dimension, and it is actually transformed into matter. But this matter didn't begin with matter. It began with spiritual energy. And the spiritual energy evolved until it assumed a veneer of matter. But even then, it still possesses that spiritual, essential energy dynamic, which is the counterpart and the origin and the source of the physical entity. This is true about every single aspect of this universe. Every phenomenon, every creature, every human being, every animal, every being, every existing thing. And all its nuances and details did not begin with matter. They all began with energy, with spirituality. And this spirituality evolved into a physical entity. This is true about rocks, about flowers, about trees, about all vegetations, about fire, about water, about the sun, the moon, the galaxies. Whatever you name whatever you name. We are physical people. And we perceive the world as a very physical place. We perceive matter. We fail to appreciate the energy of the matter. So when we discuss the sun or the moon or other entities, we are basically discussing it from a physical perspective. We are from a physical perspective, we are basically dealing with the final stage of evolution. Of evolution from the spiritual to the physical. We are basically dealing with that specific object and entity as it reached its final stage. And we usually fail to appreciate the deeper elements of it from where it came and from where it evolved. So 
So we see the end of the process and we don't appreciate due to our physical realities, we usually don't appreciate those deeper elements. Ah, uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, very good example. He's giving an example of fire. It says in Kabbalah that fire actually embodies the energy called Gvura. Gvura means rejection or restraint or discipline. Fire didn't begin with fire. Fire begins with a spiritual energy, with a spiritual faculty, attribute called Gvura. Then Gvura begins to evolve and materialize and become more coarse and more coarse until in this physical plane it assumes an identity of fire. But all the physical features that define fire, even its colors and the manner as it moves, the manner how it moves and so so on and so forth, all of the details of fire are basically mirrors, reflections, projections of the spiritual energy of fire as they are expressed in a physical form. Very good example, thank you. And the same is true about every single issue in the world. Yeah. Now, we come back to this issue. When the Chachmi Yisrael addressed astronomy, and when they addressed the celestial bodies, the heavenly bodies, whether it was the sun, the moon, the galaxies, the planets, they did not only address it from its physical dimension. They also appreciated and perceived the spiritual energies that these physical objects embodied and, and, and personified. They did not only have an understanding and an appreciation from the physical external element of the enti- of every entity, but also from its spiritual entity, what the Radal calls not only from the Chitzainis, but also from the Pnimius. When they discussed the moon, the sun, they didn't only perceive and deal with the external dynamics of the sun. They also dealt with the spiritual, the Pnimius, the internal spiritual energies that the sun embodies. So when they discussed the celestial beings, entities, and their journeys, and their paths, and uh, so on and so forth, they dealt also with deeper elements, with deeper dimensions that we sometimes don't perceive. And we know, for example, today in physics, we have the level of atomic particles, and subatomic particles, and sub-subatomic particles, And then the whole entity and the whole reality changes. What it is on a revealed state is totally not what it is in a concealed state. So the Radal, he doesn't use, of course, uh, this parable. But the Radal brings out that this is what was going on. When the Chachamim spoke, when Chachim Yisrael spoke about the Shemesh, and where the Shemesh is by day and where the Shemesh is by night, they weren't only discussing about the physical, they weren't only discussing the physical Shemesh. They also took into account all aspects of the Shemesh, all layers of the Shemesh, not only the physical layers, but also the deeper physical layers and even the spiritual layers. And ha-emesikachmi Yisrael, when you appreciate the Pnimis, then you see that the Chachmi Yisrael were emes, were 100% emes. Sometimes, it is not expressed and it is not appreciated on the physical level. Sometimes there is a dichotomy between an object as it is on its spiritual plane and as it expresses itself on its physical plane. And Radal says that's the reason why Rabbi said, Because they, in, in, in debating, they could not be victorious over Chachmi always. Because the level of reality that they perceived, if they were to articulate, that perspective to Chachmi Yomas, they would scoff from the Chachmi Why would they scoff from the Chachmi It was totally imperceptible. Totally would be unappreciated. It would seem ludicrous. It would seem ridiculous. Nonsense. It would seem like sheer stupidity. So concerning this element, the Chacham had to remain silent. They could not prove in concrete terms, using the methodology that was employed in those ancient times to prove the state and the patterns of the celestial beings, according to those ancient methodologies, they did not have the instruments through which to prove their point. And therefore, as the Radal puts it, it seemed like that they have been defeated in this debate. But they never confessed. They never said, you're correct and we're wrong. We agree to you. Because And the same as this is true concerning the sun, and the firmament, and the wells, and the earth, 
and so on and so forth. It's true about every single object in the world, as mentioned. And it's also true about every single dimension, every single word, nuance, and mitzvah in the Torah. The Torah itself also has these two dimensions. The Torah has a physical dimension, and the Torah has a spiritual counterpart. And every story in the Torah, whether it's the story of Eitz Hadas, whether it's the story of the flood, whether it's the story of Yosef's brothers throwing him into a pit and selling him to Mitzrayim, whether it's the story of the Jewish people being enslaved in Mitzrayim, whether it's the story of building the Mishkan, and so on and so forth, the story of the spies of Kairach, of the Messianim, of Miriam, whatever, you, whatever story is in the Torah, there is the physical, concrete dimension of it, and then there is the spiritual energy, the spiritual, metaphysical counterpart of this story where everything exists, but it exists on a deeper psychological and spiritual heavenly plane. And the same is true about every mitzvah of Torah. Every mitzvah has these two elements, has a body and has a soul. There is the concrete expression of the mitzvah in physical, concrete, mundane terms, and then there is every mitzvah has a spiritual counterpart. Take, for example, a mitzvah like tevilah, like tevila, immersing, immersing in a ritual bath, which we call a mikra, a pool of water, which has to have certain qualifications in order that it should be classified as a kosher mikvah and so forth. There is the mitzvah of tefillah on a bodily level, on a physical level. That you have to have a physical pool of water which has a certain amount of water. And the human being's body has to immerse himself or herself in a mikvah. And as a result of that, tahara purity is introduced into this person's life. And then these laws of mikveh, hilchis mikvayis, are extremely complex and extremely nuanced. And there are very many details that deal with the legal, physical system of mikvah. That's one dimension of the mitzvah. Then there's another dimension of the mitzvah. There are svarim that deal with tvila on a spiritual plane. Where immersing in water doesn't mean only immersing your physical body in physical water, but rather water symbolizes a certain type of spiritual energy. Because water, like everything in the world, also evolved from a spiritual plane. And your body symbolizes a certain energy. And immersing your body in water is metaphoric of a certain experience, of a certain, of a certain process that the human being goes through in his spiritual soul, which as a result of that, the human being introduces spiritual purity into his life. And these two parts of the mitzvahs deal with two elements in man's consciousness. The first part, the former part of the mitzvah deals with man's body. And the latter part of the mitzvah deals with man's soul. Because I could go into a mikveh, I can immerse myself physically in, my, in the mikveh, and my body has been affected. But my soul, at least in a conscious, vivid way, has not been affected. For this, you have to be in touch with the spiritual element of, as it reflects itself in man's spiritual soul, where every mitzvah, and every halacha of a mitzvah has an interpretation, not only on a physical level, but also on a spiritual level. Which is more important? Which is more significant? So, of course, we begin with halacha. We begin with the physical element of the mitzvah. We begin with the physical element of Torah. If someone denies and says that Torah and mitzvahs are solely spiritual, that's also ridiculous. Because Torah and mitzvahs were, desert, were given to us in a manner that they have to translate in very physical actions and very physical deeds. A soul without a body is not expressed in the real world. A soul without a body remains celestial, aloof, sublime. It doesn't have an impact on the real world. On the other hand... Often a body without a soul is dead, lacks vitality, lacks fervor. So both elements of the Torah are part of the same whole, of the same entity. It's like the human being, the Zeis HaTorah Adam, a human being, synthesizes and integrates body and soul. And they become one whole, one entity that creates a healthy human being. So the Torah has these two dynamics that together, as they are integrated together, discuss two elements, two issues, which are both extremely crucial in man's development on his journey on the face of this earth. Now we come to your question. How do you know about which dimension a sefer is talking about? When you open up a certain sefer and it's talking about mikveh, how do you know if this sefer is talking about? Legal practical dimensions of mikveh or the metaphysical dimensions of mikveh? When you open up a pirish and chumash, how do you know if it's discussing the physical projection of this chumash story or it's talking about the spiritual aspects of the story? It's a very good question. That was your question, yeah? And the answer is very simple. You have to look at the Sharablat. You have to read the title page. If it's a sefer from halacha, or it's a sefer of Kabbalah. If it's a sefer of halacha, and halacha includes all of the Rishonim, Achreinim, and Shalzot Shuvisvorim, and Paskim, that is the title, that is what says in the title page of the sefer. So we know that this sefer is dealing with this dimension of reality. And if someone comes along and opens up a Shulchan Aruch, for example, and says, you know, it says in Shulchan Aruch, that uh, every morning you have to put on tefillin. 
So, it's talking about spiritual tefillin, about your spiritual soul. It doesn't mean you have to actually take physical black boxes and place them on your physical arm and head. That's antithetical to Torah. Because Shulchan Aruch is a safer of halacha, and halacha deals with the physical life of the Jew. Halacha governs the concrete, bodily, earthly dimension of the Jewish life. Of Jewish life. So when it deals with tefillin, and with placing tefillin on your arm, it's not talking about the spiritual symbolism which a hand characterizes. It's not talking about a hand, an arm, as it exists in the higher worlds before it assumed the physical identity. It's talking about a hand on this physical earth. An arm, and a, le- and a head, and so on and so forth. But then, when you open up a Sefer, which the Sefer is a Sefer of Kabbalah, it's a Sefer of Pnimi Yisatayra, it's a Sefer which deals with the esoteric dimensions of Tayra. this Sefer, it's designated, its purpose, its mission, its goal, is to address Tayra and Mitzvahs from this element, from this perspective. And the same is true concerning the concepts and the definitions of Tzadikim, Bainanim and Nishayim. We can define a tzaddik, a Bainanim and a Rasha from a bodily perspective, from a goof perspective, from a concrete perspective. And then we can define a tzaddik, a Bainanim and a Rasha from a soul perspective, from a metaphysical, spiritual, celestial perspective. Or in concrete terms, we can define them from an external perspective and we can define them from an internal, from a pneumatic perspective. When you're dealing with tzaddikim, bainanim and yushayim, from their bodily, more external, concrete dimension, the accurate definition, and this is not a fake, the accurate, true definition of tzaddik, bainanim and yushayim, is as follows. If a human being behaves in a concrete way, in his actual activities, he behaves in a way which is antithetical to the divine blueprint for life, then this person is deemed a Rasha because he has rebelled against Malach Malchem Lachem HaKadosh Baruch. If the human being never rebels against Malach Malchem Lachem, his behavioral life is absolutely consistent with the divine blueprint, with the divine roadmap, and this human being is truly, truly defined as a tzaddik, as a righteous human being who projects in his behavior the perfection, the goodness, and the harmony of HaKadosh Baruch. This is what the Al-Tarebbe is indicating, explained the Rebbe, with the word B'medrish. This is why the Al-Tarebbe makes this choice, and he says, V'lachain amru razal B'medrish. Where does it say, Ra'akadosh Baruch Hu B'tzadikim She'im Uatim? Amad V'shaslam B'chol Deir V'deir. That Hashem saw that Tzadikim are so few, and therefore He had to plant them in every generation. This says in the Medrish, when you're dealing with Halacha, when you're dealing with that part of the Torah that deals with man's physical life, with man's external life, with man's behavioral life, then tzaddikim, benanim, and rishayim have a certain type of definition which is 100% true in that domain, in that domain, dimension of that reality. And what is the definition there of a tzaddik? Someone who behaves absolutely consistent with Hashem's will as a tzaddik, and someone who does not behave in that way, is a rasha. But when you're dealing with medrash, when you're dealing with that part of Torah, that addresses and is concerned, not only with the external element of man's life, but rather with the essence of man's life, rather with the internal soul and consciousness of man's being, when we examine the essence of the human experience, then the terms take on new definitions. Based on the internal state of the soul. Halacha is concerned by definition with the external state of the soul. With the goof. And therefore, the fact that a person, for example, has a yetzir hara, has an inclination, is irrelevant. It's of course relevant. But it will not take away from his status as a tzaddik. Why his behavioral life is absolutely an expression of ratzin habayre. On the other end, if his behavioral life is not, is not an expression of Ratzon Abayr, he would be deemed a Rosh. So therefore, the Gemara says, We see in Gemara, as mentioned before, Gemara Kedushin, last week, Zagdal 
in Madrash, which deals with another element in the human experience. Here the term tzaddik takes on a new definition. A tzaddik is not only someone whose behavioral life is a projection of Ratzanabed. A tzaddik is someone who's the totality of his experience, the totality of his condition is all permeated with godliness. And a person who the totality of his condition is still dichotomized between good and evil, between godliness and antithesis of godliness, can't be called a tzaddik. So this person is called a bainani. And it's this bainani, which is the primary concern of the Alter Rebbe and Tanya. The Tanya is not concerned so much with the tzaddik, although the Alter Rebbe will address the tzaddik in several chapters. His primary concern is the bainani, because the bainani is the ordinary ba- man. Bainani means intermediate man. But I think a more accurate translation which conveys the message is an ordinary man. Sefer shall bainanim, this is the book of ordinary men. Because the ordinary man is unique, is unique, he's ordinary. He's unique relative to the tzaddik. In the sense that the vision of spirituality, the vision of godliness, doesn't fill his entire being. There is a part in him which is still egotistical, which is self-centered, which is selfish, which is earthly. Which is self-oriented, self-directed. Which in practical terms means that this person can have very ugly impulses. And can have very ugly cravings. And can gravitate towards things which for the tzaddik are repulsive and abhorrent. And for the bendi they also might be repulsive when he doesn't gravitate towards them. But when you yourself crave towards it, then it suddenly becomes beautiful. Right? But nevertheless, despite this internal dichotomy, despite the fact that godliness has not permeated his entire condition, he never allows the negativity, the ugliness which is in him to master his life and to take over his body and its limbs and to be expressed on a behavioral level. And that's the uniqueness of the Bainani. Yeah. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.